0: Well, thanks, Dave, for that missions report, you know, it's important, along with what we've been doing, second hour and third John, to, uh, let me turn that down a little bit, um, importance of missions. He mentioned, uh, talked about what George Mueller is doing, what the Mueller's are doing, and this morning, just as I was uh, wrapping up my morning notes, I suddenly had a little message pop up on my Computer that Jim Myers was online, and Jim shot me a brief report of his trip to Odessa. He left Wednesday and went down to Odessa on the Black Sea and spent some time teaching there for three days. He says, "Um, most enjoyable of all was my time with the eight members of the Campus Crusade team working in that city. We had a three-day conference for university students. The hall was packed. The crowd was largely unbelievers. Afterwards, I was surrounded by people with questions. The response to the lessons was so enthusiastic, they didn't want to leave. For three days, I had people coming to me to talk about all manner of subjects. We pray that the word will have lasting and eternal impact on those who heard. The academic dean of a Bible institute in Odessa came to hear me speak. And after the class on Thursday evening, he approached me and asked if I would come to Odessa to teach. Of course, I told him that was not possible. He asked if I could come to teach a course, and again, I am not able to move down there for a semester. Finally, he narrowed me down to a two-week course. (laughs) They have a program where they bring in pastors twice a year for a month. He asked if I could come for two or three weeks, and I told him that I would just not be possible this winter, so he suggested next summer or next winter. And I told them I would come if I had an opening uh, during that time. It's just amazing to see how much opportunity there is. People hear sound doctrine taught as they have never heard it before and they want to hear more. I would like to be able to do more teaching in other places because I think that it will make more and more people aware that there is so much more in the Word of God and in the spiritual life than they ever imagined. And if they can be pointed in the direction of sound doctrine, this will pave the way for more good Bible teachers in the future. I'm just so grateful for the opportunities to be an ambassador for the Lord in so many places. Thanks to all of you who are making it possible for us to be able to carry on such a ministry. Back in Kiev, we continue our search for a building. Our Wednesday night Bible studies now fill even the larger room we have been renting. And if it continues to grow, we will have to find an auditorium. The room where we meet on Sundays can hold another 15 to 20 people before it maxes out. But we must find a new place before the first of the year, which is only a few weeks away, so we are diligently tracking down the possibilities. Do pray for us in our search. We need to remember that. They have um, been renting a place that was sort of its a, it's a kindergarten government-owned facility, and somebody started getting so We might realize that this is you talking to us challenging us with our own priorities and what is important in our own lives, where, where the truth, the infallible, inerrant Word of God must be the highest priority. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Third John. Third John verse 9. Third John verse nine. Now as we have gone through this epistle, we have been focusing during the first half of the epistle down through verse eight, on John's praise for Gaius. Gaius is apparently simply a member in this local church. We don't know where the church was located. We don't know anything about the local church, and that isn't necessary. In fact, I think that because we don't know anything about the church, it gives us a, an opportunity to see greater application from this. Now, I don't want to make the mistake, and it is a mistake, of jumping too quickly to application in this section. It's easy to do once we get to a certain point because it just sort of unfolds from a natural study and understanding of the text. But there's a contrast that John is setting up in this epistle between Gaius on the one hand as a positive example of a believer who is reaching spiritual maturity and how that is impacting their life and their priorities and their day to day life. And he is specifically praised for his orientation to missions and his support of the evangelists and the pastors that are coming through the area, the itinerant ministers and his support for them. But more than that, he is praised because he is walking by means of the truth. And four times that word truth, the Greek word aletheia, is emphasized in these verses. And whenever we read the word truth in one of John's writings, we need to think a little bit more than just the word truth or the word doctrine. Remember, it's in in uh, the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the truth. So we have our Jesus statement that he is the truth. So Jesus Christ equals the truth. Furthermore, we have John's statement in John 1-1, that Jesus Christ is the Word. He is the Logos. He is the highest revelation of God to man, the highest communication of God's will to man. So Jesus Christ equals the truth, the truth equals and Jesus Christ equals the Word, then we can say that Jesus Christ as truth equals the Word of God. Truth and the Word are associated together. And Jesus then, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, prays to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. So we see a connection here. Which is so typical of John in the way I pointed it out many times. He uses certain words and he, he, he'll put one word in there, but he wants you to be thinking about two or three other things and he ties all of these concepts together. So we have an emphasis here on Jesus Christ, the truth and the word that when we're walking by the, by means of the truth, third John three, you're walking by means of the word, which is doctrine. We know from what Paul says that we have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2:16. We're walking by means of Jesus Christ and his thinking, which is absolute truth, which is the same as his word or, or Bible doctrine. We rejoice, I mean John says he rejoices because of Gaius' testimony to to the truth, to doctrine, to Jesus Christ, all that's wrapped up together. He's walking by means of the truth, by means of the word, by means of doctrine, by means of Jesus Christ. And it's the application of all that in terms of his impact on missions and the expansion of the gospel ministry in verse 8 that he, he is praised as a fellow worker of the truth. And that's true for us, that when we are involved in prayer, in financial support of missions, in going over on short-term missions trips, and maybe next year we will get an opportunity to run another a uh, short-term trip like we did this year. Uh, I know Dan's already talking about it. We uh, talked to Jim about it. We don't have any firm plans. And maybe next year we will get more than just a few young people from Preston City Bible Church. There are uh, so many people out there who are listening to tapes. Who not only listening to tapes, but I'm amazed how many people... Are listening over the internet because we're putting more and more Bible classes out on the internet. In fact, we're in the process of changing our uh, our site so that we have a lot more memory, so that we're able to put a, n- a number of Bible classes on, and not just the six or eight that we have right now. And I'm just—it it always amazes me uh, when I go to conferences uh, and I hear people referring to or asking me questions. And and they don't get tapes, and I know they don't get tapes, but they're listening on the Internet. So we don't even have a clue the impact uh, of the ministry of Preston City Bible Church. It's not just local. It's worldwide. So maybe we'll have some other folks who will be interested in, in going with us over to help in Ukraine next year. And by doing that, John says, we are a co-worker of the truth. And we participate in the truth. So what we see in the first eight verses is a picture of Gaius as a mature believer. We did a character analysis of Gaius last week, and I want to review that, and then we are going to contrast that with Diotrephes. Diotrephes is the bad guy. If you're writing an opera, Gaius is the tenor, and Diotrephes is the bass. He is the villain in this piece. Uh, Gaius loves the truth. He is someone who consistently applies doctrine. He is walking by means of the truth, verse 4. Therefore, we concluded, he is doctrinally oriented. His thinking has been shaped by the word of God and this is the key he is positive to the truth he understands there is an absolute truth that God has revealed in his word and the purpose of that that revelation is to challenge us in terms of who we are what we think and what we do it is the absolute truth of God's word its purpose is to revolutionize our lives to strip off all the human viewpoint thinking to strip off the the uh, arrogance and the self-absorption and to replace that with a character that imitates Jesus Christ that is founded on the absolute truth of his thinking which is then the foundation of our thought he understands that as a result of that he demonstrates in his life the results of grace orientation, and that is he is hospitable, he's generous with his time, he's generous with what he has, he makes sure that those who are traveling through his town are well taken care of. He is exhibiting generosity and hospitality, which should be manifest in the life of believers. Both of these Uh, realities indicates that he understands the foundational spiritual skills, walking by the Spirit, or first of all, confession of sin, second, walking by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, and third, the faith rest drill. And he has his priorities straight. He understands that the priority is on truth, absolute truth, and that which has an enduring product and in fact there's terminology that is similar to that the idea of work and produce in verse uh verse 5 it's translated in the um in the king james or new king james beloved you do faithfully what you do and actually the the word there for um Uh, For do has to do with work. You you do, you perform, you work in a faithful manner. You do what you do in a faithful manner and uses that word uh, ergo, which has to do with produce or the product of one's uh, time and energy. So he is investing himself in that which has uh, eternal value. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, spiritual service and hospitality and generosity are means to spiritual growth. They're the consequence of spiritual growth. Now, we take that picture of Gaius, and we contrast it with Diotrephes. Now, this is the major warning of this epistle. There's praise for Gaius positively in the first eight verses, and then in verses 9 and 10, we have the negative negative. We have instruction by contrast here. See, that's, that's crucial in any kind of pedagogy is to draw a contrast. Oftentimes you can, and I've seen this in my ministry, you can teach the truth without reference to distortions time and time again. And the next thing you know, people are going out and getting involved in something that's screwy simply because it wasn't quite in focus. Sometimes you have to teach the contrary. You have to teach the human viewpoint, contrast, divine viewpoint, and the various shades of distortion because by understanding the various shades of distortion and human viewpoint that's prevalent today, it brings the truth into sharper focus. And it's important to do that because the natural tendency of the fallen uh sin nature is to rationalize and to justify our own disobedience to Scripture and our own uh, partial uh, obedience to Scripture. And all of that has to do with the problem of arrogance, which is what we get into in verse 9. The contrast is between the humility of Gaius and the arrogance of Diotrephes. Diotrephes' uh, arrogance is the result of negative volition. All arrogance goes with negative volition to Scripture. I don't care who you are. I don't care how sweet you are. I don't know how kind you are. You're still arrogant if you're operating on the sin nature. And there's a lot of people who operate on pseudo-humility and pseudo-gentleness and pseudo-kindness, and it all flows out of... particular arrogant disposition of their sin nature. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that arrogance is always pictured in a sort of negative, conceited, uh, egotistical way. Some of the sweetest, kindest uh, people that you think are very humble are the most arrogant, self-absorbed people that you will ever meet. They've just managed to camouflage it. And that's one of the major techniques of arrogance is to figure out ways to camouflage it so people don't know you're so self-absorbed. And we always have to remember that arrogance is the orientation of the sin nature. So as soon as you're out of fellowship, as soon as you're under the control of the sin nature, you're operating on arrogance. And your arrogance just looks a little different from the next person's arrogance. But what we see here in Third John is this contrast between genuine humility from grace orientation and doctrinal orientation versus the arrogance of, of negative volition in diotrophies. Now, John writes at the beginning of verse 9, I wrote something to the church. So he has written an epistle. It's really a poor translation to say something. He wrote a specific. It's not just some general epistle. He wrote some specific uh, teaching. He wrote certain things. It is the uh, Greek indefinite uh, pronoun, tis, which indicates certain things. I wrote certain things, not just something, but I wrote certain things to the church. He wrote specifics about different areas of, of doctrine and application, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. So is, there is a rejection of the apostolic writing. Now, when John makes this first statement, he says, I wrote, and this is the aorist active indicative of the Greek verb, grapho, meaning to write. And whenever you have an apostle using the word grapho or the word to write, what immediately should come to mind is the doctrine of the inspiration of scripture, and this is foundational to understand what's going on here. John's writing to the church isn't like your writing to the church. Now what John wrote that he's referencing here, some think might have been 2nd John. Uh, others think it was probably something else. I tend to uh, think that it was pr- not 2nd John. It could have been, but probably was not. Probably just some other uh, apostolic instruction. It wasn't, this that, w- that John wrote in these other epistles, wasn't to be ca- uh, included in the canon. Therefore, it wasn't inspired writing. It wasn't uh, inerrant writing. It wasn't, apost- it wasn't uh, to be included in the canon, but nevertheless, it came from an apostle, so it bore op- apostolic authority. It was not on the same level as Scripture, though. Nevertheless, it did come from an apostle and had apostolic authority, and Diotrephes is rejecting it. He's rejecting it because he is, first of all, rejecting apostolic authority, but more importantly from what is said in verses 9 and 10 he is rejecting the truth and this is the the foundational contrast here is that Gaius is responding to doctrine he accepts the truth and applies the truth and on the other hand Diotrephes who's operating on arrogance rejects doctrine it's not a priority He wants to set himself up as an authority, and because he is rejecting doctrine, he is rejecting the authority of the apostle, just like many people reject the authority of the local church pastor when he's teaching the word. It's ultimately a problem of arrogance, self-absorption, and negative volition to the truth. So let's review briefly. What is involved in the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture? Because that undergirds the whole understanding of truth as truth, capital T. We're not talking about lowercase truth. We're talking about complete uppercase, absolute truth, truth that endures throughout all generations in all time. Now, you can only have absolute truth. You can only have absolute truth if it exists above and outside of all creation. So we'll draw a circle here, and this describes all of creation, and inside creation you have mankind. And absolute truth is a truth that exists above and apart from and in distinction from all of creation, all of mankind, and all of human experience. Therefore, because there is an absolute truth, it can sit in judgment on the creation and everything in the creation. It, absolute truth then becomes the standard by which everything in the created realm is evaluated. Okay. Now we have to keep that in mind. The only way we can have absolute truth then is if it is guaranteed to be such by God. And we know that Scripture equates God with absolute truth. He is veracity. He is truth. And so let's look at the doctrine of inspiration to understand the dynamics in giving the Scripture. First of all, inspiration is a product of God the Holy Spirit. So we start off saying, God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor, his complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded in the original autographs with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. Now, that's a mouthful. Let's break it down a little bit to help you understand all of that. This is a technical definition and It used to be such that all you had to say if you believed the Bible was, if you believed all of that about the Bible, you just said, I believe the Bible is the word of God. But then there were liberals, those who rejected the authority of Scripture, who tried to nuance things. Well, it contains the word of God. Now, I would guess that most of you don't understand the difference between I believe it's the word of God and I believe it contains the word of God. See, if the Bible contains the word of God, then it also contains other things that may not be the Word of God. So part of it's the Word of God, and the rest is what? Human opinion. Well, who's to determine what's human opinion and what's the Word of God? Well, that ends up being some professor at some liberal seminary or some scholar or some pastor or you. You get to put yourself in the position of looking at the Bible and saying, well, this is the Word of God, and this isn't. So you take out your razor blade, and you get to... Uh, decide which is true and what isn't now you see that takes us back to our chart here because if you don't have if you're going to look at the scripture and you're going to make a decision that this is true and this isn't then as soon as you make any value judgment you're appealing to some standard now where do you get that standard if you're professor so-and-so and you're sitting in a seminary somewhere, and you say the Bible contains the Word of God, and we're going to say that, that um, you know, these verses are the Word of God, but these verses are not the Word of God, then there must be some standard for, and some criterion for making that decision. Well, where do you get that standard? Well, if you make any kind of universal statement, it has to imply the existence of some universal truth. But the very fact that you're denying the inerrancy of Scripture means that you are inherently denying the existence of an absolute truth that can sit in judgment on mankind. So you're caught in the midst of of an inconsistency, and that is what's at the core of these things like the Jesus Project. Those are the scholars that go through the Gospels and decide what verses Jesus actually said and which ones he didn't, and they color code everything according to four or five different standards. Some things are pretty sure he said, other things he might have said, other things he probably didn't say, and then there's a lot of stuff that they're sure he didn't say the apostles just made up. That is what? Arrogance, see, this is the subject we're addressing here, is arrogance produces a rejection of truth. It it produces a rejection of the absolute truth of God up here and substitutes for it a counterfeit truth, that is manufactured by the creature who thinks that he can serve as a substitute for God. And what I'm saying here, for those of you who have been consistent on Wednesday night, is what we see is a complete breakdown in the creator-creature distinction. The creature wants to be the one who judges and evaluates the creator, which is the exact error that Eve slipped into. She just got manipulated into that by... The serpent. When he asked her the question, did God say, she should have just turned her back on the serpent and walked away. But as soon as he asked the question and she started to respond to it, she was putting herself in a place to evaluate whether or not God's statement was true or false. And at that instant, she starts uh, elevating herself in arrogance to a position of judging, uh, judging God. So, we have to start off with this doctrine of ...inspiration to understand the process of how we got absolute truth. It's from God the Holy Spirit. He is the one who is the communicator of the word. God the Holy Spirit supernaturally directs. He doesn't dictate. By inspiration, we do not mean some form of dictation theory. This is the idea that some people have is that God just dictated this to Peter or to Paul or the other apostles. It's a it's a supernatural direction. Um, Dr. Ryrie at Dallas Seminary, the editor of the Ryrie Study Bible, used the the uh, word he supernaturally uh, governed. He supervised. He superintended the human writers of Scripture. It's not a violation of their of their own personality. That's the next clause. The Holy Spirit directs the writers, but at the same time, He doesn't override or He doesn't, uh, waive these various factors. So the beginning of the definition, again, God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of scripture. One other point on that first clause. You have this function of the divine and the human. Now, this is important. We'll come back to this in a minute. You have the f- operation of the divine plus the human, and the human authors are fallen, sinful human authors. But God, this is a picture of God that is so great and so large that despite human sinfulness, God is still able to produce that which is without uh, error, that which is flawless because he overrides and governs a situation without, and this shows an extremely high view of God, that he can do this without violating their individual personalities or their, to a certain degree, their individual volition. So we see God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence... And you can see the difference between the different writers of Scripture. You can see that that Peter has one uh you can see his intelligence, the intelligence of the Apostle Paul comes through in his lengthy sentences and the the rigorous logic that he uses. Uh, without waiving their vocabulary, their different styles and vocabulary between the different writers of Scripture, so that one writer may use a phrase one way and another writer another way, without waiving their human intelligence, their vocabulary, individuality, literary style, our personality, personal feelings, any other human factor. You read through it in the original, and you can tell that John, for instance, writes in short sentences. He uses a simple vocabulary. Anybody could understand what he says at that level. But John, as I've pointed out many times, John was probably in his 80s when he wrote the Gospel of John and wrote the epistles. And when he wrote the Gospel of John, he's been thinking for, for 60 years about what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And he's ma- and he's been teaching this all this time. And so he's managed to, to reduce this to very simple sentences that are just Hacked with content and with nuance, and it's just—it's—it may seem simple, but it's not. In fact, any first-year Greek student thinks he's mastered Greek because he can. And translate the first fifteen verses of John 1 and think that he's accomplished something, but the vocabulary is simple, the grammar is simple, but that doesn't mean you understand the implications and the content of what, uh, John says. On the other hand, when you get into, into Paul, he has lengthy sentences, compound complex sentences that are loaded with, uh, difficult vocabulary, he coins a number of words that he just pulls together and makes compound words out of uh words of in everyday usage in the uh everyday discourse in uh the mediterranean world and he takes these words and he invests them with new meaning so now you really have to look at everything in a much different way so there's all kinds of differences and yet the Holy Spirit superintends, governs, supernaturally uh, directs the process so that he doesn't violate that. You're going to see clear distinctions between the writers. Nevertheless, his complete and coherent message to mankind is recorded in the original autographs. Now, that is an important phrase, in the original autographs. Inerrancy and infallibility only applies to the, those original documents. Because as soon as it left their hand and Paul sent that letter to Ephesus and somebody made a copy, they made a mistake. And so the copies don't, are not without error. All kinds of errors entered in, uh, as a result of copying. But that doesn't mean that it changes doctrine. It doesn't mean that it changes the, uh, that we don't know what it said. If I were to dictate a letter, if I were to take that letter from Jim Myers that I read earlier and I were to dictate to you like we had done when we were in the fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, if I were to dictate that to you and then I were to lose that original, I could take the all the copies from everyone here and even though many of you would write things down wrong, you would hear things wrong, you would leave out a word, I could reconstruct the original from all the copies. And that's the science of textual criticism. It's very complicated because there are thousands and thousands of not only uh, fragments of the New Testament or in some places, some cases you have whole epistles, but you also have thousands and thousands of translations that were made in the first, second, third century, so you can go back and you can look at Syriac editions, you can look at at uh, Arabic translations, you can look at Latin translations that were made in the early church, and all of that has to be analyzed and studied and that 's why textual criticism is an extremely complex subject, a complicated subject, and is a Field of study all on its own. It's loaded with all kinds of fun, fun uh, studies such as statistical analysis, and and uh, you have to know five or six different languages, and you have to be able to read the original scripts. Every now and then, I go to a museum, and I'll look at, uh, for example, a couple of years ago, we were in London, went to the British Museum, and we looked at. I looked at a Codex Sinaiticus, and I couldn't read it. Because the Greek, the, the form of the letters, isn't the same as what you see in a Greek text today. It's similar, and if uh, you can, I can painstakingly begin to work my way through it. But there are some differences. One of which is it's an uncial text, and we very rarely work with an uncial text. That's where all the letters are in uppercase, and some of the letters look look a bit different. And, uh, then of course there's no break between the, the words in the original. They just ran everything together, no punctuation. So it's, it's, you really have to learn how to read these things. And then when you get into the Hebrew, my goodness, you look at what the Hebrew and the way it was written at the time of David doesn't look anything like the way the Hebrew alphabet looks today. And if you go back to the, and look at the Hebrew alphabet that Moses had, And that Moses wrote with in 1400 BC, it doesn't look like the alphabet that David wrote with 500 years later. So the alphabet, the way they shaped the letters, changed through the years. And I couldn't sit down and read what Moses wrote today at at all because it looks different from the from biblical uh, from the way the the language the structure of the letters uh, d- developed into. So that's all part of the science of textual criticism. Anyway, inspiration, God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. That without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor, his complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded in the original autographs with perfect accuracy. There's no errors in the original, in the original language of Scripture, so it doesn't apply to translations. errancy only applies to the original autographs in the original languages. The Bible that you have in front of you is not infallible. The Bible that you have in front of you is not inerrant. It is a translation and a translation is always subject to flaws which come into play because of the translator's lack of familiarity with the original language because he brings his own uh, theological biases to the translation and a number of other things that can affect it. So inerrancy only applies to the original autographs in the original languages, and the very words themselves bear the authority of divine authorship. Now there are three corollaries to this doctrine that are incredibly important for us to understand. And the first is that inspiration is verbal. Is verbal. Inspiration is verbal. This means that in the original languages, the Holy Spirit guided in the choice of words used. Why one word and not another word? That's why we get into the Greek and look at why a particular word is used, because that word has certain connotations and certain nuances that were emphasized that a synonym would not have had. So, And and you change the word from, let's say, let's use something rather prosaic, let's use a word like dog versus coyote. All of a sudden a different image comes into your head, chihuahua versus German shepherd. Now, they're both dogs, but you have totally different image in your head, basketball versus football instead of just a ball. So words mean something. They, they change ever so slightly the point of emphasis. So the Holy Spirit guided in the choice of words used, and human authorship was respected to the extent that the writer's literary style and vocabulary are employed, uh, but without the intrusion of error. Okay, verbal means that the words are inspired, plenary. See, we talk about verbal plenary inspiration. used to be you say, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Then you had to say, I believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Then you'd have to say, I believe the Bible is the verbal plenary inspired Word of God. Verbal means every that the words are inspired. Plenary means that all of the Bible is equally inspired. You can't just say that the red letters are inspired because that's what Jesus said, okay? The whole Bible is the mind of Christ. The whole thing ought to be in red if we're going to, to do that. See, the red letter, the very fact that you have a red letter edition is a, is an implication that the rest of the Bible that's not in red isn't as authoritative as what's in red. It's a slap in the face to in, in the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy. So plenary inspiration means that the accuracy which verbal inspiration secures is extended to the entire Bible so that it is inerrant and infallible in all of its parts. All of those genealogies are just as equally inspired as what Jesus said in the Gospels. The creation account in Genesis 1 is as equally inspired and inerrant as anything Paul says in the, uh, the epistle to the Romans. So plenary means it's, it has the idea of fullness. The whole Bible is equally inspired and infallible. And then the third term that is important to understand is the word inerrancy. And inerrancy had to be added back in the uh sixties and seventies because people were saying that, oh well, I believe that the Bible is verbal, plenary inspired, it's the infallible word of God, but uh it only applies that's only in errors of faith and practice. So they were there's always some way and in another generation we're gonna have to come up with another word to put in there because the human fallen mind always seeks to try to figure out some way to weasel out from under the authority of the word of God and to find mistakes in them. He really doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that for me. You know, maybe for you, but not for me. Okay, inerrancy. What does that mean? It means that the writings in the original autographs, we've already covered that, were without error. That's the foundational definition. But in the process of copying and duplicating the manuscripts, errors of transmission crept in, such as leaving words out. That's called haplography. You Copy down something, you leave a word out. Sometimes you duplicate words. You have a, a, a phrase on one line and a phrase on the next line, and when you go back and forth in the process of copying, your eye skips from the first clause to the, to the repetition of it, and you leave out everything in between. That's called ditography. Changes of spelling and grammar over the years, changing of the way the alphabet is written. Uh, took place. So that changed some things. And furthermore, there were misguided attempts by scribes to clarify a difficult passage. So they would add a word thinking it clarified the passage a little bit. And sometimes a a, a scribe would be working with a manuscript and in order to help him or to clarify something in his own mind, he would write a word in the margin. Just as you write little notes in your Bible, he would write a note in the margin. Then the next scribe, 200 years later, that came along and found that, that uh, manuscript, when he copied it, he included that note into the body of the text. So, there are a lot of different ways that little errors creep into this text, but the vast majority of them are errors related to spelling, leaving out a word, adding a word, things of this nature that have no impact whatsoever on any major doctrine in scripture. they don't affect anything, and we have so many um, so many manuscripts that we're easily able to reconstruct the uh, original. Now, this is important because it tells us that we have, in the 66 books of the Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, we have a guaranteed revelation from God that is absolute truth. And that truth then sits in judgment on mankind. And I'm going to put another word in here, and that is, Culture. Now, when we developed our thinking as we've come through 3 John, we talked about missions back in verses 5 through 7. And part of the way we define missions is taking the gospel and the word of God into a cross-cultural context. And in taking the word into a cross-cultural context, I said this began in Genesis 3.15. And the first missionary is God who comes to the fallen Adam and Eve and gives them the gospel and begins to teach them. And so you have God coming into a fallen culture, and he starts to correct that culture with absolute truth. Now, we're building on this whole concept because we have to understand that this is the nature of all teaching of doctrine is cultural transformation, but we're get, I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit. Now, here's what happens with diatrophies. John says, I wrote to the church, so if it if, if wasn't in errant writing, if it wasn't to be inscripturated, it still had apostolic authority, but nevertheless... There were other writings of John that did have, that were inerrant, that were to be inscripturated, that did have absolute uh, truth in them. And John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. In other words, Diotrephes has decided he knows more about the church, he knows more about doctrine, than the Apostle John does. And so in his arrogance, he is rejecting truth, in contrast to Gaius, who is accepting truth. So Diotrephes, who's probably a believer, but he is a carnal believer, he is a believer who is in negative volition to the truth, because he is operating on arrogance. And he is said to be one who loves to have the preeminence. And this is the Greek word, Philo, I'm going to write that up on the board. It is philo, pro, two, oh, p-h-i-l-o, that's that first word from the Greek word philos, meaning love. And the next syllable is p-r-o, which has the idea of being first, and with the uh, suffix two-o, it has the idea, this is T-E-U-O, it has the idea of someone who loves to be first. This is a person who is self-absorbed. He wants to be the most thought of person in the congregation, loves the spotlight, loves the attention, loves the preeminence, is operating on approbation lust. Now, this is one of the greatest dangers that churches face is pastors and deacons who love the preeminence. The biggest trap for any pastor to fall into is arrogance, and the same thing happens with a lot of deacons. They get involved in either power lust or approbation lust, and they want to carve out their own little fiefdom, their own little realm of authority. And one of the most egregious things that happens is when you get pastors who run the whole show, they don't have any board for accountability they sign their own checks. They run the whole church from uh, from their own authority, and they're basically on a power trip doing their own thing. That's not how a local church operates. Uh, everybody is under authority. Nobody can just go out and do whatever they want whenever they want. There needs to be some basis for accountability. But Diotrephes is not letting anybody come into the congregation that can challenge his authority. So he is keeping John away and John's messengers away. And John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be in the spotlight, loves to be the preeminent one, he has not received us. He does not let anybody come in. Therefore, John says in verse Verse 10, therefore if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words. So, uh, Diotrephes has fallen into arrogance and he is operating on the five arrogant skills. Now, the five arrogant skills begin with self-absorption. As soon as you sin, as soon as you are out of fellowship, arrogance takes over. Arrogance is the natural orientation of the sin nature. So as soon as you're out of fellowship, you're you're operating on arrogance and the orientation there is towards self absorption. Self absorption leads to self indulgence. The more you focus on yourself, the more you do what you want to do and you want to give in to what you want to want to do. So self-absorption leads to self-indulgence. Self-indulgence leads to self-justification. You want to prove that you're right and that this is perfectly legitimate for you to be so self-absorbed and self-indulgent and to do all of this for yourself. Self-justification blinds you and you become self-deceived and you can't see what you're doing. You don't see your own uh, subjectivity. You don't see your, see your own uh, self-absorption, and this leads to a self-deification, and this is a process. It's a cycle that people get into, and it, depending on how well you've practiced this in the past, it may only take you three seconds a- after you uh, get out of fellowship to be into full-blown arrogance, where you're walking down the self-deification path, and this is exactly what's happened to Diotrephes. He has and he has rejected the authority. ...of the Apostle. God is not the one who is in charge anymore. He is. And this is the problem with arrogance, is that you deify yourself. The creature puts himself in the place of the Creator. He rejects the fact that there is an external frame of reference from God... ...that sits in judgment on his own life. You have absolute truth that is like a spotlight that shines on the thinking of the fallen creature. But the fallen creature doesn't like that, so it comes up with all kinds of reasons to ignore, to reject, to deny the existence of absolute truth in the spotlight. This is what John is referencing in John chapter 3 when it says the people love the darkness rather than the light. It's because the light exposes us in in terms of who and what we are is a fallen, self-absorbed, arrogant creature. So the creature rejects the truth and substitutes his own form, his own brand of truth, which is some sort of relative truth system, some sort of relative value system, as the absolute. And this always fails. Now, John is not going to let him get away with this. See, there is accountability. And John is going to take care of this when he comes. Verse 10 we read, I thought I had verse 10 up there. Verse 10, we read: For this reason, if I come, and that is a third-class condition. John is not sure that he will come, but a third-class condition has the idea that this is an element of, of though there's an element of contingency here, it is considered a more probable condition. That is, if I come, I'm not sure that I will, but that's my intent. In all probability, I will come, and if I come, I will call attention to his deeds. And this is the Greek verb, hupomimnesko, which simply, as a future tense, simply refers to something in the future and has the idea of, of bringing something to memory. He will remind everyone of what Gaius has done. He will rehearse his failings because they weren't done in private. They've been done in public. He has taken advantage of the congregation, and John will hold him accountable. And this involves unjustly accusing us with wicked words. That is, he's engaged in... Uh, slandering he 's engaged in maligning he 's engaged in running down John. this always happens whenever somebody 's in rejection of authority they want to undercut the authority. Oh, I really liked what the pastor taught this morning, but you know blah 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 it 's always what comes after the butt that kicks you, and that always tries to straighten people out and you know he was really fine and good, but so always wait for the kicker so He's going to undermine John's authority, and he's constantly been doing this and setting himself up in his place. And this happens many different times in churches where people uh, become full of themselves and think that they know more than an academically trained uh, pastor teacher does. Now, that doesn't mean the pastor is always right, but he is the one in authority. And a pastor who is in Uh, submission to the Word is constantly going to be learning and is constantly going to have his thinking renovated by the Word, and that is true for any pastor. I mean, a pastor is only as good as his teachers, and as he learns the skills, then he can move beyond his teachers, and that should be the goal of any pastor. When a pastor is involved in training young pastors, his goal should be to produce men who can do better than himself who can build on what he has done who can take the doctrines that that have been taught and go further with them and it, this is not a matter of competition it is matter of development and that's what we've seen throughout church history is one generation building on what was taught and what was developed by the previous generation and and what happens is in arrogance is you get people who want to think they've got a corner on truth and they are the final point of revelation or uh, teaching in the church. But there will be people who will come along and take what I have taught and build upon it. One of the greatest things that, 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 that I've seen happen over the years is that back when I was in, I must have been in high school or right out of high school in college, a pastor theme taught through Daniel. Did a great job teaching through Daniel, and we've got some of the books that we've had here on Daniel. Well, not long after that, in the mid to late 70s, Charlie Clough taught Daniel at Lubbock Bible Church. And uh, some years after that, I think Tommy taught Daniel. Tommy had transcribed almost all of Charlie's stuff. Now, when I've listened to Charlie's teaching on Daniel, I can pick out exactly what part of it was taught by Pastor Theme and what part of it Charlie developed as he built on that. So it starts off with what? Pastor theme taught, then Charlie built on that, fine tuned it, then Tommy came along and taught on top of that, and then about eight years ago, Tommy gave me his notebook that was three inches thick, plus the electronic files on all of that, and when I came and I taught on Daniel, I built on top of that. And now Dan has it, and Dan's going through my Daniel tapes, and he's straightening out my notes and adding this and adding that, and when Dan comes along and teaches Daniel, It's going to be as a result of taking all that material that went before and building on it. And that's how it goes. And somebody's going to come along after Dan and do the same thing. And it just builds and refines and develops our understanding of the truth. And this is a great process and indicates uh humility and grace orientation, but Diotrephes is just the opposite of that. He's operating on arrogance, and he, as a result of that, he's involved in running down uh, the authority over him. And furthermore, John goes on to say in the second half of verse 10, Not satisfied with this, He himself does not receive the brethren either. So not only is he rejecting John's authority, rejecting the truth of Scripture, setting himself up as the final authority... But he is not accepting the brethren in contrast, remember, to Gaius who did accept the brethren. So as missionaries came through, they would go to the local church, Gaius would say, okay, what are you teaching? Who's your authority? Oh, you're under, you're listening to John. You like John. Well, you're out of here. I'm not going to do anything for you. They would go down the road and then Gaius would take care of them. So he has an attitude that is antagonistic to the missionaries because they are uh properly oriented to the to apostolic authority so his rejection of the truth affects what it affects missions it affects his support of missionaries and arrogance always does that it affects missions and destroys missions and evangelism and every realm of teaching of bible doctrine so he's not just satisfied with running down the authority of John. We read, he himself does not receive uh, epidecomi. He does not receive the brethren, in contrast to Gaius, who does receive the brethren. And he forbids those who desires to do so. And he removes them. Ekbalo—that's the same word used for casting a demon out. He removes them from the church. So anybody who wants to be oriented to missions and the support of John and apostolic doctrine is being evicted from the church by Diotrephes. So he's out to build his own little kingdom. All right, we did a character analysis of Gaius. Now let's do a character analysis of Diotrephes. He rejects authority, and he therefore rejects the truth. He rejects apostolic authority, and he rejects the truth. And this is because the basic orientation of his of his soul under the control of the sin nature is arrogance. He has set himself up as a final authority. He is living in carnality, been in carnality for some time, and it continues to intensify. When we look down at verse 11, verse 11 and 12, deal with an application from these two uh, case studies. And there John is going to say, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He is clearly showing the contrast between uh, Diotrephes as an example of evil and Gaius as an example of good. So we can say that, that Gaius practices evil. He is walking in darkness, not in the light. He is not applying the word. And the, the practical application of that is that he is ejecting people from the congregation. He's not supporting the missionaries and evangelists that are coming through. He has an imperious, cold, and authoritarian attitude, and he is characterized by sins of the tongue, maligning, slander, gossip, gossip and judging others. All of this is in contrast to the maturing believer uh, Gaius. Now this is true for any person, any believer can fall into this same kind of trap, and this happens every time we get out of fellowship. As soon as you get out of fellowship, you begin to operate on arrogance. So let's get a few points, (coughs) excuse me, a few points on arrogance. First of all, arrogance is defined as the creature elevating his ideas, opinions, values, and actions over that of the creator. The arrogant creature puts his own ideas, opinions, values, and actions over the creator. He's going to judge God and God's word from his own frame of reference. Second thing, as noted already, arrogance is the basic orientation of the sin nature. It's the basic orientation of the sin nature. Therefore, point number three, arrogance is the enemy of the spiritual life. Arrogance is the enemy of the spiritual life and is the, is the complete and total opposite of grace. Point number four, arrogance is synonymous with vanity. Arrogance is synonymous with vanity, which puts all of the emphasis on one's own person, uh, talents, attainments, or possessions. It's motivated or it feeds a lust for approval from others. Point number four, arrogance is synonymous with vanity. In vanity, you put all of the emphasis on your own person, your attainment, your possessions, and it is linked with a lust for approbation or praise from others. Fifth point, arrogance brings with it a host of other sins, mental attitude sins such as jealousy, jealousy, bitterness, vindictiveness, implacability, revenge motivation, as well as sins of the tongue, such as slander, gossip, judging, and maligning. So point number six, arrogance is a mental attitude sins, sin, which overflows into uh, the motivation, decision-making, and and. Uh, priorities as soon as you become arrogant you change your priorities notice the priorities of Gaius are on the word of God the truth and supporting those who teach the truth whereas Diotrephes is more concerned with his own position, his own preeminence and his own uh, approbation now The subject that we've had throughout this time has been missions. And there's a major problem today in missions. Now let's go back to our basic definition of missions. I'm not going to get extremely complex on this subject because it is, this is a, this will burn your brain cells. We've already done enough of that this morning. Here's truth. God's word is absolute truth, and God's word sits in judgment on all of creation. Creation is what it is because God's word defines it. God defines his creation. Now, when that creation falls, the only way creation can truly understand itself is through truth. God invaded his creation in Genesis 3 uh, 10 and following when he confronts man with his sin and gives him absolute truth what's happened at that point after the sin of Adam and Eve is they now have are producing a fallen culture now what do i mean by culture culture is the sort of the conglomeration of values, morals, ideals, practices, uh, laws, customs of any particular group so that you have a culture in your family. One family does things one way, another family does things another way. One family has a bunch of people who are who are, I call them bats, you know, these are the folks who are night people. They go to bed three or four in the morning, and they sleep late. Others of us have a real-life orientation, and we get up when the sun comes up, or before. You know, we're morning people. Okay, so you have some families that are one way, some, that's just that's your culture. Some One family may be very positive to doctrine, and the Word of God is number one in their life, and the family will read the scriptures together, they'll pray together, they'll go to Bible class, that's the emphasis. Another family's negative, and there's all kinds of things going on in that family. There's abuse, there's anger, uh, there's all kinds of destructive behaviors that are going on there. It's a very unpleasant place to be. So each family has a culture. You have, uh, each country, each nation has a culture. So you can talk about national cultures. But then you have a nation, and it's divided up into all kinds of subcultures. And these subcultures may be related to political beliefs. They may be related to ethnic background. They may be related to uh, uh, sexual proclivities. I'm not going to say sexual orientation, but sexual proclivities and perversities. All kinds of different subcultures. Now, when the Word of God comes along, the purpose of the Word of God is to change that culture, whether it's your personal culture, your family culture, your work culture, your ethnic culture, your uh, what, social club, whatever it is, the Word of God, because it comes from absolute truth, speaks to every culture, and it's not culturally relative. What's happening in, it's not just in missions, it's a result of liberalism, it's the result of postmodernism and the arrogance of modern man, is that culture is being made to sit over truth. So that truth then becomes, uh, the victim of multicultural thought. So that you have the, uh, development of different kinds of theologies like liberation theology or feminist theology or black theology or gay theology. But you have all these theologies where they elevate a certain culture and make that judge the truth so that it changes the way they translate the truth. Now you take those, now that's happening in, in, in our American culture with various subgroups, but you take that same kind of thinking and move it out into the world where you have Asian cultures and you have, uh, African cultures or Arabic cultures and you want to elevate, you want to take elements in those cultures and elevate them over over the word of God. Now that's not anything new, it just has a whole new rationale. I mean, we saw that same kind of thing going on with the uh, East India Company uh, out of Britain in the late 1700s and early 1800s when their managers didn't want missionaries going on to India because it might upset the Hindus and it would upset business and we wouldn't show as good a profit. So you've always had different ways of making uh, uh, rationales, but today we have this sophisticated rationale related to uh, culture, elevating culture into a position higher than the truth, and what that does is it eradicates truth and makes the truth of God's word something that is relative. Now, when truth is reduced to a lowercase t, it becomes changeable. Now, why is this important? It's important, let me wrap this whole sort of study up. It's important because if you go back and you think about what we learned when I went through the history of missions, what was the first thing that happened again and again and again at the forefront of missionary activity? Is you have examples like like Ulfilas well, who went into the Goths what did he do he had to come up with an alphabet and he had to develop a written language for the Goths so that he could translate the bible into their native language you saw the same thing with Patrick taking the gospel to Ireland you saw the same thing with the missionaries that went out from Iona and Lindisfarne uh people like Boniface who took the gospel to the Germanic tribes and others who took like Willibrord who took the gospel to the Frisians and others who went up into Scandinavia, and you had Cyril and Methodius who took uh, the gospel to uh, the the Kievan Rus in what is now modern Ukraine, and they, they were the ones who invented an alphabet for Russian which is now known as from Cyril's name it's now known as a Cyrillic alphabet what was the first thing they had to do they had to they had to reduce a language to a written language they understood that before you can get anywhere with the gospel and impacting any culture for the truth of God's word it has they have to have the word of God in their language but if you come along and you have this kind of distorted view of culture and truth which is dominant today coming out of America which has been the the anchor of missionary activity in the world and now we get involved in postmodernism what it does is it changes the nature of absolute truth it impacts translation theory language theory and hermeneutics so that what what becomes the what becomes jeopardized is a clear translation of the word of god into the languages of native peoples. And this is affecting all kinds of things on the, let's, I will call it the periphery of missions. It's not happening at the core of conservative Bible-based missions, but they are being affected just as you and I are affected every day by postmodern thought in our culture. They can't escape it. And so this is a warning for us today. That that because of arrogance in our culture, because of the rejection of the word of God, just like Diotrephes, what is a, what is at stake is the survival of the truth. In missions, the survival of the Word of God. It's the same thing in your life, in my life. When we get into arrogance, what's at stake is the survival of the Word of God, the absolute truth of Bible doctrine in our day-to-day life. This is why it's so crucial to keep short accounts on sin, to to make sure that we're in Bible class, to consistently use 1 John 1, 9, because it's so easy for arrogance to slip in in some sort of camouflaged manifestation that before we know it, we've stopped walking by the Spirit, we're walking according to the sin nature, and we're in a self-destructive mode on our own spiritual life. Well, next time we'll come back, and we'll probably come pretty close to wrapping up our study on 3 John as we come to the final uh mandate that that John gives in the last uh, four verses with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by it, to realize that there is absolute truth that sits in judgment upon our thinking, upon our lives, that there is absolute uh, truth that sits in judgment as a basis for evaluation over not just an American culture, but every culture, that the goal is to transform, to renovate. Uh, our own lives, the culture of our own lives, into uh, that which is consistent with your word, that which is shaped by your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need do is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. You don't need to be involved in any sort of religious activity, bargain with God, make some sort of moral reformation of the life. All that is required is to believe that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for your sins so that right now, right where you sit, you can make that decision, and that will determine your eternal destiny. Father, we thank you for what we have studied this morning. We pray that you would challenge us with it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would us stand for?